It's good to be with you this afternoon and come up from Albany, Oregon. Think of uh, the Apostle Paul when he was writing to the church at Rome, talked about his eagerness to be with them and see them face to face. He hadn't met them, but because they held the same Christ dear, it was a joy to be together. And uh, I kind of chuckled to myself. I was thinking this afternoon, the last time I was here, I said the, the irony of Joseph and I is that although we've had many phone conversations, and we preached for each other, we had never actually officially met face-to-face. So this year at Shepherd's Conference, we were going to remedy that, and it just so happened that I had a phone call that I had to take. And so now we have we've set our gaze on one another, and we've waved. We just have yet to actually sit down and have a conversation. So uh, we're progressing little by little in our relationship. And uh, I got a text this week from a dear brother in Albany, uh, who met Joseph down there at the Demon program, and I was thrilled to hear that. And uh, there's some neat things the Lord is doing in like-minded churches and brothers uh, throughout the Willamette Valley and that region. So I hope that's an encouragement to you as I'm just beginning to kind of lay some similar burdens uh, on one another's hearts. Also, I'd like to extend an invitation to you. Uh, this September 13th through the 15th, we will have Todd Murray uh, visiting our church down in Albany. We're going to host Todd Murray. And he served on staff as a music minister with Steve Lawson uh, for some number of years. And then Lance Quinn as well. And he's written a biography on uh, Newton. And he's going to be uh, taking old Newton hymns, some of them that are less familiar, and he's put those to modern music. And so he's going to put on a concert on uh, Friday the 13th and uh, do a seminar over the weekend. Um, Joseph does know that I'm inviting you to that. So we uh, spoke about that, and I do have his blessing to do that. Well, this morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, we just started a series at Cornerstone this week in Hosea, and that's a difficult place to go for a one-off. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning, and uh, I hope to encourage you from the Scriptures. Allow me to pray. And then we'll give our attention to God's Word. Father, you know our hearts. David is clear that you knit us together in our mother's womb. Even before we were born, before the foundation of the world, uh, you decided to set your love upon us in Christ. And that is hard for us even to get our, our feeble minds around. Lord, the truth of the matter is, sometimes you feel distant from us. Sometimes our day-to-day life doesn't seem to line up or correspond very accurately or closely with the lofty themes that we read in Scripture. Father, the, the, the difficulty for us is to walk by faith and to believe you. So, Father, I pray that you would give us grace to believe your word today and that It would do its work that we have come to love and appreciate and depend upon as it feeds us, as it nourishes us, as it uh, is like water for our souls when we're thirsty. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to build up your church uh, this morning as uh, we sit under your truth. Might we believe it and be changed by it. Pray that you would continue to bless Joseph, Lord, while he's away, that Uh, His mind would take in all of the content that he's learning, or that in the midst of the busyness it would be worship to you. We care for his family while he's away, Lord, and that 
this program would be something that does not take away from his ministerial life, uh, but, but furthers it and progresses it, Lord, for your glory. Show us all these things in your name. Amen. Well, one of my dear friends from seminary ended up as a missionary in Africa. And one of the highlights that I have in, in knowing him is when we get to correspond. And he trains pastors there in Africa. And one of the pastors, to help raise support for his uh, ministry work there, to support himself as he pastors a small church, is to create little ceramic mugs. And so the first time I ever got one of these mugs, it was a joy for me because I love Dave, my friend, and you get to support a ministry, and I like to drink coffee, so it's just a win, win, win all the way around. And lo and behold, I I broke the mug. So I I travel back to Florida every six months for a job that I have there, and there's a stash of mugs. Every time I go back to Florida, I get a new mug. Usually lasts me about two months before I break it. This time it was about five weeks, so I'm currently without a mug right now, but these mugs are uh, something that has a little bit of personal attachment. But at the end of the day, when I break one, it's just not that big of a deal. I don't lay awake that night after my beloved mug breaks, shedding tears of sorrow. I'm mildly disappointed, but it's not that big of a deal. In fact, there's a lot of things that break in my life that are a big deal. When the transmission breaks... That happened to my car a couple years ago. That one hurts, right? That leaves a little bit of a mark when your transmission breaks. Uh, if you fry a laptop, if anyone's ever done that, I've done that before. You lose your files because they weren't backed up properly. That's a painful sense of loss. But a broken coffee mug, it's just not that big of a deal. You know where this is going. Paul's metaphor for us is that we are like earthen vessels. We're like clay pots. We're like coffee mugs. Something that is weak, something that is lowly, and something that is expendable. Now, a hint to all of the fellows in the room, if you're married or if you hope to be married, it's good to to use words of affirmation, right? Say something positive and affirming if you are pursuing a woman or if you're in marriage. In Song of Solomon, we have all of these inspired records of a husband speaking to his wife. Some of those don't translate very well for us as he compares his wife to a horse in chapter 1. That's probably not the best transition in our day and age to tell your wife or your future wife that she looks like a mare. He also says that her hair is like a flock of goats. You say, honey, your hair just looks like goat hair today. That's not going to go over very well. But... Can you imagine just calling her a clay pot? Say, baby, you are so weak. There's nothing that stands out about you or makes you distinct from anyone else that's common. You're about as valuable as something I would purchase off the shelf at Dollar Tree. Should there be something that happened to you, it wouldn't be any big deal. I would just replace you with another one. See, being called a A clay pot is not very flattering. And yet that's the very metaphor selected by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe himself and his own ministry. If you and I were to hear the Apostle Paul talking today, 
you'd probably be diagnosed as someone who had a poor self-image. Low self-esteem, a a negative self-perception. And yet this is how Paul viewed himself and how we are to view ourselves. Weak, lowly, and expendable. How does your flesh feel about that description? Tell you what, my flesh doesn't like it. I would prefer to have something to boast in. My flesh would like to be able to take pride in appearances and feel self-confident, perhaps be able to to look down upon others, to, to, to feel like I could take credit for something that I've received from God. That unrenewed way of thinking is earthly. And that's exactly the mindset in Corinth right now. When Paul wrote this letter, he was not a man who was strong or impressive. He was not financially successful. He did not have a commanding stage presence. Rather, he openly and honestly spoke about himself in his ministry as though he were personally nothing. And anything and everything he accomplished was only by the power of God. And so when you encountered the Apostle Paul, what he wanted you to walk away from after that interaction was not being impressed with Paul, but rather thinking much of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was it, that Paul would just kind of sink into oblivion, that he would disappear, that he would vanish. You wouldn't be thinking, man, Paul is such a godly guy. Man, he knows the word of God so well. He's such a skilled shepherd. He's such an amazing church planner. Rather, you'd be thinking, wow, how incredible is God that he would enable a man in that way? That's who I'm impressed with. And so this gets right to the core of today's message. And I hope that this is an encouragement to you as you struggle with discouragement, with affliction, and with personal weakness. See, our flesh wants to hide from personal weakness and run away from affliction because we like to feel capable and strong. But Paul is trying to crush this mindset in Corinth. And so in our passage today, Paul is going into autobiography mode. Rather than simply teaching us instructions, he's actually talking about himself in a way that we can understand from his own example an important truth. This is his self-perception, if you will. Paul uses three purpose clauses in this passage. One in verse 7, one in verse 9, and one in verse 11. And each one of them relates to putting on display the greatness of God through human weakness and affliction. 2 Corinthians is considered Paul's most transparent letter of all of his epistles. He simply bears his soul as he writes to this church. You probably know this is the fourth letter that he wrote. 1 Corinthians was the second. There's one in between 1 and 2 Corinthians that we don't have. It was not inspired. So 2 Corinthians is now the fourth. And to understand Corinth, you have to understand that uh, Corinth was very similar to modern-day San Francisco here in the United States. Corinth was destroyed by a fire, as was San Francisco. It was resettled and became very cosmopolitan, much like San Francisco. It was a center of finance and trade and commerce. And it was also a place that was very ungodly. In Corinth, they were self-promoting. They placed a premium on appearances and eloquence. There were sophists and orators that would come with rhetoric, and they would debate, and they would win arguments, and people would have a, a following where you would essentially follow your favorite orator, not all together different from our political system a bit in the United States today. That was kind of the cult of personality. 
And so the church at Corinth became vulnerable. After Paul left, there were those who came in appearing to be apostles who were false apostles, and they began to deceive the church, and they would do so by discrediting the ministry of Paul. Their main argument went something like this. There's no way that a man who looks like that, who's uneloquent, who's weak, is possibly used by the Lord. Think about Paul's appearance after being beaten and flogged and stoned. It wasn't impressive. He'd already said that he intentionally didn't preach himself. He didn't use wisdom. He didn't bring anything that anyone wanted to hear. He just preached a crucified and risen Messiah. So Paul's concerned because a rejection of him is a rejection of the gospel. And so he's powerfully elaborated on the glory of the gospel. He's been confronting false mindsets in Corinth. And when he goes into autobiography mode here, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, he begins to talk about four ways that our limitations and our struggles specifically magnify the glory of God. Your weakness and your trial is something to embrace. If you value and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to see him put on display, and Paul is going to show that to us. The first way that displays Jesus in our lives is human weakness. Human weakness. Verse 7 kicks off this section where Paul writes, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now Paul says, we. Who is the we that he's talking about? Well, this we, according to chapter 1, verse 1, is Paul and Timothy. He says that they have something, what they have is a treasure. And this is the common word for treasure throughout the New Testament, uh, the treasures that the Magi brought when they worshipped Jesus, the riches or treasures of wisdom that are found in Christ, Colossians 2, 3. So Paul says there's something that him and Timothy possess, something that is precious, something that is valuable, something that is beautiful, and something that is worth hanging on to. What is this treasure? It's the glory of God and the gospel in Jesus Christ. He just said it's the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ in chapter 4, verse 6. It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in verses 3 through 4. And, and so Paul is saying that this is the treasure that we possess. If you've seen treasure before, how is treasure typically displayed and showcased and highlighted? Think of the crown jewels. What are they displayed on? Red velvet, black velvet, lots of sparkly lights. Something that showcases the beauty and the wonder of that valuable treasure. They get valuable treatment. You don't see them in wooden pallets or sitting in paper grocery bags. But that's not the case with God and the gospel. Paul says, unlike a a normal treasure that you would display in a grandiose way, this treasure is put inside of earthen vessels. Earthen vessels, the perfect translation, these were clay pots. There were containers made of clay. And Paul's speaking of himself now. 
He says, I have this remarkable, valuable treasure, the life-saving message of Jesus Christ and the glory of God in the gospel. And God decided to put that in a clay pot. Paul didn't just pull this concept out of thin air. Clay pots were used all throughout the Old Testament in various ways. They were used for various purposes. But the point was that it was a, a, a simple pot that would be used for the down and dirty tools of the day. If you want to understand a few realities of it, first you have to understand that a clay pot is weak. A clay pot is weak. It's fragile. Prone to breakage. It's easily chipped and cracked. As one commentator put it, these were bound to break sooner or later. Not only that, but they were lowly. You'd have uh, bronze vessels, you'd have golden goblets, but clay pots were cheap and they weren't beautiful. They didn't try to make them look nice. The point was that you would just put something inside of it, such as refuse, garbage, human excrement. These weren't your fine china dishes. They were the down and dirty tools. Not only that, but they were expendable. So if you broke a clay pot, you didn't go get the Gorilla Glue to put it back together. You threw it in the garbage, you broke it into little pieces, and then you grabbed another one off the shelf. Not very flattering, right? Can you imagine going to the Christian bookstore to get a card for your friend? There's all these with different names on it. God calls you his beloved and then some flowery description. God delights in you and a nice verse. How about the card that says you're weak, lowly, and expendable in God's economy? That's exactly what Paul is saying here. That's what it means to be a clay pot. And this is Paul's personal assessment of himself, that he's just a guy, he's an ordinary man, and he's simply a human. You know one more point about vessels that I find very interesting? Is that for all the for all the weakness and all the lowliness and all the expendable nature, vessels are still essential. They're still required. Can you imagine trying to drink coffee out of your hand? It doesn't work very well. Rather, even though these objects are lowly, and think of how we use porcelain for a toilet, we use ceramic for a coffee mug, we use clay for a pot in a potted plant outside, we use clay pots for simple usages. Although they're weak and they're lowly and they're expendable, they're also necessary. And so we begin to see that God in his wisdom has said, I want to take my gospel and I want to entrust it to human beings, but I want to do it in such a way that they're required but they're not the significant reality. The significance is mine. God chose to take his glorious gospel and entrust it to humans who are easily compared to clay pots. Why did he do it? Well, verse 7 says, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Paul is making is that if the gospel was housed in something that was personally strong and resilient, then whenever opposition or difficulty comes, the vessel gets highlighted. The vessel gets 
credit. But the result here is that God's surpassing or exceeding greatness, His excessive greatness, would be seen through that earthen vessel. See, the point is that when you and I endure in difficult days, God's design is not that Him and us would share in the glory or share in the credit. It's not that God's power and my will, my gumption, are both highlighted and put on display. Rather, the exceeding greatness of God's power is to shine forth and demonstrate that it doesn't originate from you or from me. Paul's about to get into a list of afflictions he suffered. It will be evident that it was not Paul's power that sustained him. It couldn't be. God wasn't saving in Corinth superstars or intelligentsia or political powerhouses or public figures or powerful members with a high socioeconomic status. Paul would say to this very church in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty, But God, rather, has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world. And the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Do you not find that strangely encouraging? That if you feel like a personal nobody... That's something to embrace. That's something to expect as part of God's design so that the greatness of the power belongs to Him and not you. Frankly, sometimes we are Corinthian in our thinking. I would have fit in well, unfortunately, in some of these areas at the Church of Corinth. Listen, if you try to mask your weaknesses or hide or pretend that you don't have them, then you're actually resisting God's design for keeping the focus on where it's supposed to be. I'm not saying that you need to come up here and grab a microphone. We'll do open mic and you can just air all your personal weaknesses and dirty laundry before the congregation. That's not what Paul has in mind here. But Paul's saying that when you speak about who you are, you're honest about weaknesses. You're not talking about only struggles that were in the past after you've resolved them, but you could talk in the midst of a struggle and say, I'm having a hard time right now, and I don't actually have it figured out right now. I'm struggling. Could you pray for me? Truth of the matter is, we're so crafty when we talk even about our weaknesses. Oftentimes we flatter ourselves or we say it in a way that's socially acceptable. We'll even try to sound like we're embracing weakness without actually doing so. But Paul said that he became a fool for Christ's sake. And he said it to a bunch of people that hated the thought of being associated with a fool. Just ask, are you open and truthful about your personal weaknesses? Do you embrace them rather than trying to run away from them? So that you might sit testify that it's God's sufficiency that sustains you and the sufficiency of Christ in you. I'd ask, are you aware of subtle ways that you talk about yourself that preserves 
your dignity and your reputation at the expense of truthfulness. Friends, Paul made people uncomfortable by the way he talked. Here's a grown man talking about, in this very letter, crying, trembling, feeling weak, despairing. Why, Paul? He said in 2 Corinthians 1.12, we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Paul said, I, I just wanted to be sincere. I am who I am by the grace of God. I don't have anything to hide. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my sufficiency. What you see is what you get. And so Paul made people in Corinth feel uncomfortable because when he talked about that type of weakness, who did it make look bad? It made them look bad. It made them feel uncomfortable. They wanted to follow someone who was strong and impressive. And Paul says, I, I, it's where I was at. I lived in sincerity. And can I tell you that when you left spending time with Apostle Paul, you would have been impressed with the Lord Jesus Christ and his sufficiency. Isn't that what we want? Friends, it comes through embracing our human weaknesses. And Paul wanted the church to know that it's not only human weakness that displays Jesus in our lives, but it's also severe affliction. It's severe affliction. Apostle Paul knew what it was to suffer. Our Kent Hughes postulates that it's, it's difficult to find records of any individual in the history of the world that has actually suffered more than the Apostle Paul. Certainly we could say there was no one who, who willingly subjected himself to suffering again and again and again in the same way that Paul did. In these next few verses, there's a little pattern that jumps out. There's eight participles that function like couplets. The first half illustrates human weakness somewhat generally, and then the second half, divine power. The second verb is an, a, an intensification of the first. And when you read that in every way, that is distributed, which means every single one of these couplets means that Paul experienced this suffering in every way. We'll take them one couplet at a time. He begins in verse 8 by saying, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. This is a broad term for affliction. It encompasses all types of calamity and distress. It really focuses on, on two different sides of pressure. So when you think about affliction in your life, there's affliction that comes from the outside. That's the oppression or tribulation part of this word group. It's the events or circumstances that bring pressure and difficulty against us. And then it also has an internal nuance of distress and anguish. It's the psychological, if you will, the internal struggle. And so Paul says we are afflicted in every way. He's talking about outwardly we're afflicted and then inwardly we are afflicted. Both circumstances as well as personal struggle. This word for being afflicted is used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, when Jesus talks about the narrow gate and the restricted path. Mark uses it in Mark chapter 3, verse 9, where the crowd was pressing up against Jesus. So the idea is that you have this pressure that feels like it's caving in around you. 
think confinement, claustrophobia, either literally or figuratively, that is how life feels. Paul says we are pressed and we're squeezed, but we're not suffocated. Paul says my life circumstances feel like constant pressure that never lets up. But I find this power at work in me that my faith continues to endure. It's not snuffed out. Not only that, but I'm perplexed, he says, but not despairing. To be perplexed is really about the mental battles. We know that Paul's trials weren't just merely the physical suffering that he endured in his body, but it was mental and emotional pressure as well. This is the emotional pain that we face. This is the agony of struggle that maybe you bear certain burdens that no one else on earth knows about. No one else is there to bear with you. These are the things that keep you awake at night. The things that you write out on a page in a journal and then you want to rip it up and shred it before anyone can see it. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, after that litany of all that he endured with shipwrecks and beatings and floggings and starvation and hunger and sleepless nights and shipwrecks, he gets to the end and he says, and apart from all those external things, there was the internal pressure. There was the mental anguish of all the churches that were my daily concern. Daily anxiety that Paul experienced for the churches. That's the word. Paul is burdened by these things. You know what these are. Perhaps it's your own sin. It's loved ones who don't know the Lord. Spiritual burdens that are heavy. People you love going against the warnings of Scripture. Just your own perplexing issues. Paul said it got so bad in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 at one point that he actually despaired of life. Getting to the point in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where he started to ask himself, is it even worth it anymore? I'm, I'm starting to despair of life. I've come to the end of myself. And you know what he says the purpose was? It was so that we wouldn't depend upon ourselves but upon God. The Lord, the Lord let me go down to that depth to refine my trust in His faithfulness. The wordplay is difficult to create here. We say that Paul was perplexed but not despairing. One translation says we were bewildered but never at our wit's end. The other one says we were near desperate but not wholly desperate. At a loss but not completely baffled. Frequently perplexed, but not driven to despair. What Paul is saying is that even though he came to the end of himself, even though he had internal pressure that was at times difficult and even miserable to endure, his faith was never snuffed out. He woke up every morning. By the grace of God, he got out of bed and put one foot on the floor in the strength of Christ. And he did not give up hope. It's a good question to ask ourselves at this moment, just to stop briefly and ask, how do you deal with inner life turmoil? How do you deal with affliction? Do you turn to some vanity when you're struggling? I mean, we turn to all types of things to self-medicate when we're feeling despair. Eating, drinking, hobbies, work. Activities, sleep, shopping, 
cleaning, exercising, gaming, amusement, entertainment, relationships, either separating ourselves from them or relationships clinging to them and over-dependence. Anything to provide relief and, and try and get away from that nagging of inner and outer pressure. You know, as a pastor, I watch people go through affliction. It is a tragedy to watch when someone chases after the world looking for a human way to resolve these types of challenges. On the flip side, I don't know that there's a greater joy that I have than watching God's people, when affliction comes, turn to the Lord in dependence. It's a remarkable thing to see. The Spirit of God supernaturally enable His people. So Paul says, when when I was perplexed, I was not driven to despair, and I learned to rely upon God, 2 Corinthians 1.9, in a deeper way. When we think of the Apostle Paul, we often think about how spiritually formidable he was, how influential he was, how successful he was. And you realize that in Paul's own heart, so that he would give glory to Christ and not boast in himself, all of his success had to be accompanied by suffering and affliction. David would humble himself. So that he wouldn't begin to think about what a great missionary church planter he was. And see what God is up to in that? Paul says, I had to keep from boasting to have a thorn in the flesh. And so the Lord brought severe afflictions into my life. So that as people saw me endure, they couldn't say, that's a mere man. Rather, his sustenance comes from the Lord. Third way that Jesus is displayed in our lives is through intense persecution. Intense persecution, verse 9. Paul says we are persecuted, but not forsaken. There's a special way that we meet Jesus in persecution. It's not something that we face right now. This is one of those verses that we come to and we read what Paul experiences and we can appreciate it, but we can't actually experience it in the same way. To be persecuted meant, uh, literally in the original, the idea to hunt down or to chase down, to, to go after a prey, and when you think of hunting down an animal and killing it. Across the world, we have brothers and sisters who have houses that are ransacked, burned to the ground, loved ones murdered. That is persecution. Paul knew persecution. And he probably knew it better than anyone in the church because he was formerly a persecutor. When I think of persecution, I find it terrifying. I have a wife, I have children, I have friends who love Christ, I have my own self-preservation. I don't want to be hunted down. But it's also true that there's something unique about persecution. There's a unique fellowship with the Lord. There's a promise and presence of Christ in the midst of it that can only be experienced in the midst of persecution. See, Paul said he was persecuted but not forsaken. What does that mean? Well, not deserted, not abandoned. It's very straightforward language. The idea is that he is is not left as um, maybe someone who's under guardianship and all of a sudden the guardian leaves. 
Paul certainly knew what it meant to be forsaken by friends. Second Timothy 4.10, the end of his life, he said, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Second Timothy 4.16, he said, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. So Paul says he was persecuted but not forsaken. He's not saying I was persecuted but not forsaken by men. He was abandoned. End of his life, he's in a dungeon by himself saying, no one's here anymore. When the, when the fire and the heat got cranked up of persecution, no one was able to stand with me or people had other ministry that they had to go do. Paul says he wasn't forsaken. He means he wasn't forsaken by Christ. The same Christ who was forsaken by the Father, Matthew 27, 46. See, Jesus knew what it meant to be abandoned and forsaken by the Father. He then promises in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So Paul says, when I was in my persecutions, the Lord was with me. Christ was there with me. This is what Paul meant when he talked about in Philippians 3.10, I know the fellowship of him in his sufferings. He meant that when I was undergoing that persecution, I experienced the personal ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in a unique and special way. Man, that is comforting and encouraging. Paul comes down to his last couplet and he says, we were struck down but not destroyed. Struck down, but not destroyed. Literally, we were knocked over. We got a beat down or a throw down. That's what he's saying. It could be used in boxing of someone who is knocked over. And Paul was, was literally knocked over in Acts chapter 14. You remember the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium? And so they stoned Paul and he was taken outside of the city there. Paul had actually been left for dead and lying on the ground. But here what he's talking about is that everywhere he went in life, he experienced intense opposition. Felt like doors were always closing, relationships were a struggle, there were people right on his back trying to discredit his ministry. You want to talk about feeling like you're up against it. Paul's saying, man, I was struck down over and over Paul, how did you get back up? How were you not ultimately destroyed? Well, the Lord wanted him to endure. And Paul wrote this list to the church at Corinth. There's a literary form that they were very familiar with. It was known as a hardship catalog. So people would write hardship catalogs and they would list out all of the difficult things that they would had endured and experienced. Kind of a way of getting credit. But the hardship catalogs that were used in the world were very different than Paul's here. I'll give you an example of what Plutarch wrote. This is a hardship catalog of a wise sage. He said he is, quote, not impeded when confined, not under compulsion when flung down a precipice, not in torture when on the rack, not injured when mutilated, and is invincible when thrown in a wrestling and is not blockaded under siege, and is uncaptured while his enemies are selling him into slavery. 
as is usually the case with philosophers, that doesn't even make sense. But the whole point of that hardship catalog was to highlight the greatness of that wise sage. To talk about his strength and his might and his endurance. You contrast that with the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, we don't preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus Christ's sake. 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. See, Paul's hardship catalog is not speaking about his own personal greatness, but rather the greatness of God's sufficiency through his own struggle and personal weakness and sorrow and difficulty. See, Paul knew that his transparency and affliction was essential to highlighting what really mattered. Paul spoke often of his afflictions. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, he said that he was burdened excessively beyond his strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he said that he was in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 8, he talked about the thorn that he pled with the Lord three times to have removed. See, what Paul's doing over and over and over is talking about the one thing the Corinthians don't have an appetite for. The one thing they don't want to hear. Namely, God's perfect intentional design. See, the bottom line for Paul was this. The Corinthians had already seen Paul and all of his weaknesses. They'd already seen all that he had undergone. And so what he's trying to do here is fill in this side of the equation of God's sufficiency. To give them an understanding of why he endured. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 that Christ came to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. See, in Paul's mind, he who proclaims a crucified Messiah must be willing to be open and honest that all glory goes to Christ. Paul knew that Jesus had been displayed in his life through his own human weakness, through severe affliction, through intense persecution. It allowed Paul, rather than saying these are the worst things that could happen to me, I want to make them stop, I just want to get rid of them, my life will be so much better when I'm free from those things, to rather embrace them. Finally, it brings us to our fourth way that Jesus is displayed in our lives, and this is through costly sacrifice. This is through costly sacrifice. It says in verse 10, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. When Paul writes about this, he's talking about apostolic suffering. It's not 
not poetic imagery when he talks about being delivered over to death. He's actually talking about being delivered over to physical death in behalf of the Corinthians and the other churches that he served. In behalf of really all believers. But this word for uh, deadness is, is that he was, he was constantly being delivered over to death. The idea is that it was relentless. And yet, who is it that was handing Paul over? Well, just like the Lord Jesus Christ, he was handed over, he was delivered up. It was done, on the one hand, by humans who hated his ministry. But ultimately, it was God who was behind all of that. It was God that was handing Paul over. And so, Paul is saying that his personal suffering, verse 12, the death that worked in him was life for them. The idea is that as as Paul suffers, as he undergoes great difficulty, it's actually producing spiritual benefit in the lives of other people. His thought seems to be, as I suffer, you get to enjoy more of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the degree that Paul sacrificed personally, he was able to be a benefit other Christians. God actually used his own sacrifice for the spiritual well-being of other people. Now this is four ways that display Jesus in our lives. And I don't know about you, but my thinking needs to often be recalibrated and encouraged by today's lessons. I tend to drift into earthly mindedness, much like those believers at Corinth. To be reminded that these humbling realities that our flesh doesn't like actually have great meaning in making much of Christ in our lives. If you feel like you're weak as a human, then just embrace it. God says that you're a clay pot. You're simply a vessel to house a glorious gospel. You're dispensable. You're expendable. And yet in God's wise kindness for this season, you're still necessary. You do have a purpose. Not only that, but severe affliction. When you think of the pressure that comes against your life, the difficulty internally, this is something the Lord is producing to make you more useful to Him. Paul had to undergo it so that he'd be useful to the Lord. So do you and I. And it's to highlight the sufficiency of God's power in us. Intense persecution, third way that displays Jesus can only be endured by knowing that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. And finally, costly sacrifice. There's no way around it, but God magnifies the life of Jesus through his people giving themselves away for the sake of others. Paul found it a great joy to do that. He actually found joy in sacrifice. I hope this passage is realigning to your thinking this afternoon. Tell you what, when I am discouraged in personal weakness, when I get overwhelmed by the issues of life, I need these types of thoughts to take my mind back to and to anchor my convictions so that I can endure in the way that Paul did by the grace of Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, we would not design the Christian life the way you have designed it. Uh, We would design heaven on earth right now. Uh, We would design things to be easy and comfortable and to showcase all of our wonderful gifts. Lord, you are so wise. 
that you are so wise to give us the opportunity to endure. Lord, I pray for the people in this body that, Lord, I know without even knowing their life circumstances, know that they're in at least one, if not multiple, of those experiences right now. Father, I pray that this would cause their burdens to be lifted, and that this would cause them to be filled with hope and joy. Father, as you take categories of things that we view as negative and worst-case scenario and things to be avoided, and rather that we would embrace them. Lord, truly, that is the mind of the Spirit. It is not a natural way of thinking. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to see these things and believe them and spur one another on in them. Lord, that we would be good friends and good counselors. Lord, to point one another back to Christ and His sufficiency. Lord, I pray that you would work transparency in the hearts of your people. Lord, that that would be like a a breath of fresh air. Lord, in body life, that it would be a breath of fresh air in evangelism. Lord, to have people who are not impressed with themselves, but who are impressed with Christ, and that is evident. Lord, we love you so much. We long for your return. Bring that day soon. In Jesus' name, amen.